Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, the confounding state of our economy. Is there a rude shock for mortgage holders just around the corner? Then, the new space minister with her vision to put a second stage booster up the industry. When we launch a rocket, if something goes wrong, nobody's going to think we're trying to declare war on them. We will have that interview for you shortly. But we begin this morning with the leader of the opposition. Chris Hipkins is adjusting to life in his new office after Labour was turfed out of government at last year's election. The first few weeks of 2024 have seen the new government kill several of the big projects introduced in the previous two terms. Chris Hipkins is with us this morning. Tēnā koe. Good morning. Good morning. This is the first time we've spoken since the uh, election last year. In the three months since that election defeat, reflecting on the campaign, what should you as leader have done differently? Well, there'll always be things that you can look back on, you know, with 2020 hindsight and say, you know, could we have done things differently? Um, it was a really challenging year for us. Some mm-hmm. of the things that really contribute, you know, went against us during the campaign were things that were kind of beyond my control. You know, I became Prime Minister. We then had flooding, a cyclone. Um, we then did have some internal issues that should have been avoidable, but weren't necessarily things that I could avoid. They largely predated my time as Prime Minister, actually. Um, and, you know, so you'll always look back and think, would I do a few things differently? Yes, of course, but there's, there's really no, no value in that. No, you don't, you don't get to do over. Um, you, you, you have to keep looking forward. Well, I suppose the, the purpose of being the leader of the opposition is that you do get to do over in three years' time. And, and so that's what, I, that's what I want to know. What would you personally have done differently? I appreciate you say there are some external factors outside of your control, but what would you have done differently? Uh, look, I think looking forward to the, you know, over the next three years, when we are campaigning again three years from now, the issues will be different. Um, the personalities will be different. And so but There's nothing um, you would have done differently personally? Oh, of, of course. I mean, there, So what's the most prominent? Give us, give us an example. Well, I think one of the things when I reflect on our campaign, um, it was, uh, we, I probably should have sat down with the team at the start of the campaign and said, actually, a campaign led by me is going to look a bit differently to a campaign led by Jacinda, and we should have done different events. We should have done different things, um, things that were sort of more naturally playing to my strengths rather than uh, this, you know, just trying to rerun the same campaign we ran the last two times. So what would, what would those events have looked like? I, I think partly it was just the, the sorts of things that we were doing, mm. you know, I have different areas of interest to uh, to Jacinda, and everybody will mm. will know that, and we probably should have built that into the campaign. A bit like, more. like what? Give us an example. Uh, well, we were going to do some things, uh, sadly, in the last few weeks of the campaign that were sort of more playing to my strengths, things around home insulation and you know rooftop solar and and those sorts of things, which uh, we couldn't do because I ended up isolating in a hotel with mm. COVID nineteen. But um, uh, you know, I think just things that that would have perhaps reflected a bit more who I am. Fair pay agreements, the Māori Health Authority, light rail, RMA reforms, three waters, te pūkenga, dead. What are the lessons for your party, do you think, and your colleagues about affecting lasting change while you are in government? Well, I think, you know, the, one of the challenges for this government is what we've seen from them is they know what they want to cancel, they know what mm. they want to stop, they know what they want to go backwards on. They haven't yet, and maybe Christopher Luxon will do this today, but they haven't yet articulated a plan to take the mm. country forward. So you can spend, you know, the, your time in government just undoing all of the things that the previous mm. government did. It's not going to take the country okay, forward. OK, so that's this government. I'm asking about your government. What are the lessons from seeing all of those work programmes cancelled for, your, for you and your colleagues when it comes to affecting lasting change? 
I, I, I do think that that's a difficult uh, thing to unpick. We were faced with some extraordinary circumstances. One of the great lessons would be not to deal with a global pandemic during the middle of your time in government because that soaks up all of your time and energy. Um, and it, and away, it gives you an, a, an unprecedented parliamentary uh, majority when it comes yeah, to... Yeah, but, but it also takes you away result. from the reform programme that you were aiming to achieve. So, I mean, let's take education. I was the Minister mm. for Education for a lot of that time. We couldn't be doing huge amounts of educational reform to, say, the schooling system when schools were struggling on a day-to-day -day basis just to get enough teachers to teach the kids who were showing up at school. You pushed ahead we, with a curriculum refresh we and had, now we have what, NCA level one having a curriculum refresh and then the kids go back to the old NCA level two. Well of course that's that's a decision of the, the current government but the, the reality was is... Put in was we, that, is that a different decision to the one that you introduced? Well that they've, I, I understand they've slowed some things down, I haven't followed the I haven't followed that um, exactly but you know the, the reality is pushing through major reform mm. uh, at a time when the system is just turned upside down because of a global pandemic wasn't a realistic option. Mm. As opposition leader, how many press releases have you put out this year? I don't measure our success by the number of press releases that we put H out. How many have you put um, out? I, and look, let's be clear, as the leader of the opposition, I'm not going to fall into that trap of just mm. barking at every passing car. Mm. Um, when so I have something to say, I'll say consider how many parking, uh, passing cars you have barked at this year. As leader, how many press releases have you oh, put I've out this year? I've done several press conferences. I haven't written down and put out press statements. And the, you know, the reality so you is... You haven't done any I'll press releases out, I'll this year. I'll put out press releases when I have something to say about us. When I'm just responding to what the government's uh, doing, I won't always put out a press mm. release about that. So you've put out zero press releases yeah. this year? Yeah, that doesn't mean that I haven't been doing work. You said this week the race card killed three waters. To what extent do you think a similar debate is going to define the treaty principles debate? Oh, absolutely, and it already is. Um, I think it's a really unnecessarily divisive debate. Of course we should continue to talk about how we move forward as a country, what the relationship between Crown and Māori should look like. We recognised back in 2017 that as we come out of the other side of the treaty settlements process, which is going to happen, you know, we will resolve or, or at least settle those historic treaty grievances. Mm. As we come out the other side of that, the relationship that the Māori are going to want to have with the Crown is going to be different to the relationship that they might have had previously, and so which was more based on you know mm. wanting redress for past wrongs, and so that's why we established the Crown Māori relationship portfolio. So we need to uh, have that conversation, but I think the way the uh, current government are approaching it is just wrong. It's, it's basically one side saying we're just going to override the other, and I don't think that's what you should do. So I, I want to be really clear on Labor's position with this. When we spoke this time last year. You told me that co-governance was effectively uh, uh, something we signed up to when we signed the treaty. What other public services should be delivered with a 50-50 co-governance structure like that that you had in the Three Waters? Well, as proposal? I also said in that interview, you know, co-governance looks differently depending on the mm. context. So, 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 so which ones should specifically have that 50-50 co-governance model? Which public services? Just well, water? Well, no, it will depend. And, and, I, and I'm not going to set hard and fast rules. So if you look at water, for example, and then if you look at health, we've got different... We, we mm. had different approaches there. Yeah, you have a devolution a, a approach in, in some health, areas, in and some in, public and in, services. And in some parts of education. I understand. But not, so, so, not all. No, so, so, so example, I want to know, we, 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 if, you think, if you think that co-governance was an appropriate way of giving effect to the treaty, that, that's your position, what other public services should be delivered with a 50-50 co-governance model? Well, it will depend on the context. So, so take education. This is, so, I'm asking you for the context. Well, well I'll yeah. give you some context. Take education. In the Māori medium space, that's by Māori for Māori, it doesn't need to be co-governance because actually it's more of a devolution model. Mm. They can, you know, Māori can take control of, of Māori medium education okay, and I deliver it. I understand. On the other hand, in, in, in 
other settings, it will be appropriate to involve Māori in the governance arrangements, but perhaps not necessarily in a full devolution. So, so what are those settings, is my question. What, what settings, what public services do you think would be appropriate to be delivered with a 50-50 co-governance model? Well, I think you deal with it on a case-by-case basis. This and is I what I'm asking yeah, you. So, so give me an example think, of well, something. I don't, I, don't, I don't think a government should unilaterally determine that. I think these are the things that the Crown, the government, and Māori should determine together rather than the government simply saying, this is what we're going to do. You can, you can have some co-governance here, but you can't have it over here. Actually, you resolve those issues by talking. But you don't have a position on this? If, if this is your... If, well, if I've, just, I know I've just set out what no, my but, position but, but is, which is that you position, resolve the issues by talking. Yeah, OK, but the treaty's been there a long time. So if the treaty is in place and you think that co-governance is, a, is the way to, to give effect to, to, the, to the treaty, you haven't considered what other public services should be delivered with a similar model. It's one of the ways that you can give effect mm. to the treaty, and we've done that across successive governments mm. um, using co-governance models. Your party um, acknowledges... Uh, that 50-50 co-governance under that three waters model gives Māori and non-Māori different levels of representation relative to their populations. And of course, ACT's position is that their version of the treaty principles, they believe, would give equality to all New Zealand citizens. Do New Zealanders need to accept that upholding the treaty is not strictly universally consistent with a one-person, one-vote principle. Well, if you look at water, Māori have a legally established interest in water. Mm. They went through the court process to do that. And so the 50-50 co-governance model that we were proposing for the water entities was one way of recognising that. The current government are going to have to grapple with that. How are they going to mm. recognise the legally established interest that Māori have in water if they're not going to go ahead with that, that? That doesn't address my question, though. Do New Zealanders need to accept that upholding the treaty is not strictly universally consistent with a one-person, one-vote principle. No, I don't agree with that. I mean, we're, we're not talking about voting for the for the governance of water entities. But you, you, your own ministers, or your own former ministers, accepted that under that three waters model was not strictly a one-person, one-vote model. I, 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 no, I, I disagree that that's a, a fair analogy. So, for example, if we were to set up a, um, a water advisory board that included some representatives, this has been done before, mm. representatives of farmers, representatives of iwi, representatives of other landholders, representatives of industry, mm. that's not a one-person, one-vote model. Yet that's exactly the model that the national government set okay. up when they were dealing with, with various issues to do with water. Do all so New it's Zealanders... not necessarily always going to be fair to say that one-person, one-vote is the way we we make every decision in a democracy. That's, that's, my, that's my question. Right, so, so it isn't universally, strictly consistent in every setting with a one-person, one-vote model. Does it make strategic sense for Labour in the future to contest the Māori seats? Absolutely. Why? Yeah, because every voter should have a choice. Now, the Māori electorates have... have uh, they voted strategically last time. We won all of the uh, Māori electorates in terms of the party vote, and then six of the seven of them voted for the Māori party with their constituency votes. But the Māori electorates have moved around a lot. It wasn't that long ago that they were voting New Zealand first mm. with their constituency votes, and now they certainly wouldn't be doing that. Um, so I think Māori voters deserve a choice, same as every other voters do. The government's consulting on expanding the COVID inquiry to include vaccine procurements and efficacy, the use of multiple lockdowns and whether the goals of elimination were balanced with other priorities. Why were those not included in the scope of the first inquiry? The intention of the inquiry was pretty basic. We basically wanted something that was forward-looking, that said, what are the lessons learned that will help us to do a better job next time around? With the benefit of hindsight, you know, which we didn't have when we were making those decisions, um, you can pick apart almost any decision that we made. Um, let's, let's let the results speak for themselves. Mm. The results were pretty clear. 
um, we had one of the lowest death rates of COVID in the world. And people might forget this now, but actually we had some of the, the greatest days, numbers of days of freedom of countries in the world. You know, we didn't have as many lockdowns um, as co other countries that we would compare ourselves to because of those decisions so, that we so, took. So if you are so confident in your COVID response, why not broaden the scope of that original inquiry? Well, if you look at what they're proposing to do now, they're pre it's pretty heavily loaded, the, sort of, um, the wording that they're talking about in terms of what they want to go back and look I mean, at. I mean, to be vaccine procurement and efficacy... I've got no problem with them looking at that. That's absolutely... It's, that's fine. I mean, the I, use I, of multiple lockdowns, well, which yourself, you yourself have, have, have said actually you would reconsider yeah, it, given the, the opportunity. But the challenge there is that you, you don't get the benefit of reconsidering mm. them once they've been done. Um, you know, the reality is when we did a lockdown decision, it was because we didn't know what was happening. So we didn't know how many people would have had the virus and mm. so on. With the benefit of hindsight, you can look back and go, OK, well, we know exactly who had it and where they had it. And, but we, you, that's not information you have at the time. Do you think in the communities that feel uh, they were they were ostracised or isolated throughout that COVID response, that, a, that a, an inquiry with a broader scope will, will help to generate a greater sense of trust? I think that an inquiry with a broader scope will certainly get uh, more people making contributions to the inquiry, but it's not necessarily going to be a balanced response. You're going to get people making a response who have some form of grievance about the... But it's not the about the response. response. I suppose it's about what the inquiry actually finds. Well, you're not going to get submissions through a public submissions process from the people who are still alive today who wouldn't be had, had it been for the response. No, because but, they won't but, know who but, they but are. But the inquiry going through and considering, for example, vaccine efficacy and procurements, I mean, I mean by making all of that information... As, as transparent as possible through the form of an inquiry, wouldn't that go some way in bringing back those communities oh, that look, feel they were ostracised? On vaccine period? procurement and efficacy, I fully expected that the Royal Commission were going to cover those issues in the, in the, within the scope mm. of the original terms of reference. I've got no problem with them looking at that at all. Vaccines obviously still remain a sticking point for many people. When it comes to efficacy... Do you think vaccines have lived up to all that was promised? Yes, absolutely. If you look at New Zealand's overall vaccination rate when COVID-19 arrived and the mortality rate, the number of people who died from COVID-19, it was a fraction of what it's mm. been elsewhere around the world. And of course, vaccination was the key reason for that. Mm. Rawiri YTT's members bill was pulled from the biscuit tin this week. That, of course, would take GST off uh, food. Will you support it? I think it's a challenging bill. Look, I love the idea of you know reducing the cost of food, but it also comes at a huge cost. And the real question is, what fills that hole? You know, if, if you're going to reduce that much money coming into the government's coffers, you have to find that money elsewhere, or you're reducing funding for health, education, housing, and all of the other good things that we believe government should do. So you have to have an alternative. In principle, it's a good idea, though. Oh, look, I think it's, it's challenging. It would be challenging to find that kind of money um, you know, to, in order to remove... But your opposition is, is from a revenue or fiscal perspective rather than anything else. Oh, of course, but we haven't had a chance as a team to talk about the bill. They, they, they go through a caucus process before we determine our position and we haven't done that yet. Mm. You are introducing uh, a petition today asking the government to reconsider its position when it comes to sex education in schools. What are you trying to achieve? I think it's really important that schools are a place where all young people feel included, they feel welcomed and they feel safe. Uh, I think moving away from that inclusive model, which the current government are proposing to do, I think actually puts a number of vulnerable young people in a, in a greater degree of risk. And I don't think that's the sort of thing that responsible governments should be doing. Will you be Prime Minister again? I certainly hope so. When? Uh, certainly after the next election, that's the goal. What's your path? Whenever that might be. What's your path to victory? Uh, 
just watch. You know, we'll sit, we'll sit that out over the next couple of years. Um, and the world will be different when we go into the next election campaign and we'll be ready for that. Thank you very much for your time. Good luck. Labour leader Chris Hipkins. After the break, it's official. 2023 had our highest ever net migration. But what are all those tens of thousands of people doing for our economy? Oh, mighty, we welcome back to Q&A. Statistics New Zealand this week published its provisional migration data for 2023, showing a record number of migrants arriving in New, Zealander for, uh, in New Zealand for a calendar year. At the same time as we lost a record number of New Zealand citizens overseas. When all of the departures and arrivals are accounted for, the net migration numbers are extraordinary. New Zealand added 126,000 people in 2023. That's roughly Dunedin. Erica Stanford is the new Immigration Minister. Kia ora, good morning and congratulations on your appointment. Thank you very much. Uh, we are going to talk education on a future episode. We're just focusing on migration and immigration settings this morning. So net migration for the calendar year, 126,000 people. Is that a sustainable number? That's not a sustainable number. But I think you need to look at it in the broader context. You know, we have had an unprecedented time with COVID where literally the country emptied out. I think in 2021 we had a negative net migration of about 15,000. So you do need to look at it in that context and not catastrophise. Uh, we certainly cannot have 126 every year. But we do need to look back and say it is a bit of recuperation migration. They call it that in Australia too. And every other country is in the same boat. So there's part of that going on. The other really important thing to note is that we don't have people to leave. So all of these people we're bringing in, their visas are for, say, two, three years. They haven't started to expire yet. So in a normal circumstance, you would have yeah. people leaving and people coming in. So we're seeing uh, a part of this high net migration is the fact that uh, people aren't leaving yet. So I did note, though, in that December, we are starting to see more people leave. And so I can see that net migration is starting to shift people are starting to leave and we're going to get that equilibrium back. But in the long term, is this sustainable? No, it's not. And there are some more things to consider which we can get into. So what are those migration numbers going to be for the next three years? Well, I'm not going to put, I know you want to put a number on it. I know you're going to get your six o'clock grab tonight, say your Minister of Immigration says this. No, I see, see, here's what you said. Well, I, 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 you were here sitting in that seat 18 months ago and you said this, quote, come back and ask me again in a year when I asked you about what those migration numbers should be. You said, <laughs> let's take a look at how many Kiwis are leaving, how many exactly. migrants we've managed to attract, exactly. and then we'll have another conversation. Well, let's have that conversation, but I'm not going to put a number on it because, you know, in the end, migration is a tool, right? It's, it's not the end outcome, and there are so many inputs you have to consider exactly like this, right? So uh, I'm not going to put a number on it, uh, mostly because of all of those similar inputs we have to look at, the very first thing we have to do is try and turn this place around so that Kiwis stop leaving. Right. The second thing we do is need to take a look at the structural makeup of who we're bringing in mm. and who we're not bringing in and shift that. And okay. that is the conversation we need to have Yeah, today. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. Just very quickly, the 126,000, what impact is that having on inflation at the moment? Well, it's questionable. And I know you've got Sharon Zollner in after me and she can talk to that as well. I mean, if you look back to mm. 2022, the RBNZ and Adrian Orr were saying, we've got a supply problem, we desperately need workers. Mm. And they put a lot of pressure on the government who basically closed their eyes and opened the doors with a knee-jerk reaction. And we are where we are because of that. Now the RBNZ are, are shifting their position saying, well, because of high migration, we may now have mm. a, de a slight demand problem. It's not set. We need to take a really careful look at what's happening. But what I do not want to do is what Labor did last year, knee-jerk reaction, 
you know, and then without thinking about the unintended consequences. Do, do you accept that record high net migration is driving house prices up? I think it is having it's questionable impact. There is some impact, but more to the point, I think, in the On housing... The high side, right? The housing technical uh, group's report that was out said actually the biggest driver is land supply. Right. Which is why we're we're focused on going for housing. Sure, but rates. I mean, that's a population size of Dean, to go back yes. to that, 126,000. So the Productivity Commission in 2022 found a 1% increase in our overall population in New Zealand meant usually a 2% increase in house prices. So that would mean last year's net migration made house prices roughly roughly 5% higher than they would have been otherwise, which is well, significant. Yeah, but as I said, there are other things that drive uh, those numbers. And a big mm. part of that, as I've said, is, is land supply, which mm. is why Chris Bishop is doing a huge amount of work. I don't disagree that we've got to think long-term. One of the issues that we don't do very well and haven't done forever in this country is plan. And so Christopher Luxon has been very clear with me, uh, and, and so have the Productivity Commission and Treasury, mm. to say, actually... You know, we can tutter around with the short-term settings, but mm. we need to put a general po a government policy statement in place so that we can actually start to have some transparency and some planning. What is our absorptive capacity? Mm. Who do we need? Where do we need them? And actually plan a lot better. So, so I'm starting to go down that track at looking at a government policy statement. OK, talk to us a bit more about that. So, 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 so people are aware this is the sort of thing that we have in place for transport. Yes. Um, currently. So, so how would it work? Well, we've literally only just started to take a look at it because at the moment I am very much caught up in the short-term settings and what do we do right. around the structural thing, which we do need to talk yeah. about, about low-skilled migrants. Um, but we are starting to have a conversation, and it's very early days. Uh, I've sent my officials away to start work on that, what it might look like. It, there is, it could look like, or it could look like whatever we want it to look like, but what I want it to do is give us a planning framework mm understand what our absorptive capacity is and make sure that uh, our hospitals, our schools, our infrastructure are working with immigration so that we have better long-term planning. Absorptive capacity, just for people going, what? Uh, is, of course, the, how, much, yeah. how many migrants we can basically take in with the infrastructure we have in place. Exactly. Um, those structural settings, talk, to me through the, talk me through them. What do you, what do you think needs to well, change? Well, look, one of the things that the government said uh, in their immigration restructure, we're, we're calling it the, the rebalance, that's right, the immigration rebalance was, look, we need to bring in uh, more highly skilled migrants yeah. and we need to reduce our reliance on low-skilled migrants. Now, when we left government, half of the migrants we were bringing in were skill level one and two. So those are your doctors, your nurses, your professionals, mm. um, the people you know who drive our economy. Because if you think about it, the goal of immigration mm. is to drive productivity, it's to drive wage growth, uh, it's to drive GDP. Yeah. So that's, that's Co why it's COVID really changed things a lot, right? So, but, so, well, so no, no, no. Before, before we even got to COVID, uh, we had a bit of a switch. But okay, so, it so, wasn't so, COVID. Right. It, it wasn't COVID. So structural changes, as you find the immigration settings right now, what structural are completely different. So yeah, when, right. as I was getting this, when, when we left office, half the people we brought in were skill level one and two. About a quarter were skill level four and five, and that's your unskilled, low skilled, right? That has completely changed. Mm. Half, 52% of the people we brought in last year were skill level four and five. That is your cleaners, fast food chefs, yep. labourers, right? This so is under the accredited employee work visa, right? Exactly. Now, yeah. this is not a recipe for productivity, wage growth, prosperity, and getting yeah. Kiwis into job. Because, Jack, last year we brought in 52,000 pretty unskilled people. Was that a mistake? While, yes, it was. While... 20,000 people got added to the job seeker benefit. Now, that is not a recipe for productivity and GDP. So, so whose fault was that? Because the way that the accredited employer work visa was set up, employers had to advertise the job in New Zealand. They had to pay the median wage 
uh, to, to any employees they brought in from overseas. So whose fault is it that those people came into the country instead of giving those jobs to people who might have ended up on a benefit instead? This is squarely on the Immigration Minister. What they did was think, right, well, wage is a proxy for skill. So if we set a high uh, median wage requirement, that will mean that mm. we don't need to worry about a really good, tight labour market test. That's all they put in. And what happened was the opposite of what they wanted. We got flooded with a low, mm. you know, a bunch of low-skill migrants in this country rather than the people who are going to drive our productivity. So what I'm now faced with is, right, how do we change our settings to make sure we have a really stringent labour market test so that the jobs are genuine? that right. we are putting Kiwis first and we're able to shift those people off So benefit. what settings are you changing? Well, I can't go into the detail because they're under active consideration, but if you look back to what we used to do, I'm mm. considering all of those things and some new things. And some of the things we used to do may not be fit for purpose now. So that's what's taken some time with right. my officials thinking very carefully about how do we shift this. But to be clear, should, should we expect that the settings under the accredited employer work visa as they stand are likely to be tightened. Yes, they already have been by this, to be fair, immigration have already started tightening. They've cracked down on the construction sector and triangular employers. Mm. And that's why you have seen a slowdown, and I'll accept that, in some of the visa processing times for the work visas. I mean, you, uh, you were, you were in opposition, you were outspoken in putting pressure on the government to open up their borders and, and to open up to workers. You said immigration yes. in New Zealand was taking too long. These massive yes. delays in processing jobs checks mean mm. employers are unable to hire skilled migrants they desperately need. What I didn't say, Jack, though, was let's not assess risk and not verify documentation. I never said that. I never said, but, let's but strip away all of the labour market But you couldn't do those two things at the same tests. time, right? You couldn't, you well, couldn't you bring increase. in all of the workers that we needed in a heartbeat as soon as the borders opened post-COVID, while at the same time maintaining super high levels. Well, I, you know, and this comes back to what you were talking to Chris Hipkins about before, was changing the entire immigration system in the middle mm. of a global pandemic. I probably wouldn't have done that either. You have to remember, we went from an essential skills uh, yeah, visa, framework, framework yeah. which was fine, to the AEWV, highly permissive, mm. in the middle of a global pandemic that we weren't really ready to implement. And so, yes, we desperately needed workers, and they should have you know, bolstered the number of people who were processing visas. What they had to do, because they had this brand new visa, was close their eyes and mm. open the door effectively. And that's where we've gone so wrong. And now I have this huge mess to tidy up. Are you going to be cutting immigration New Zealand staff? No. Not at all? No. No, pro frontline processing staff mm. are absolutely essential to mm. a, you know, a, a system that works well and that is responsive, and so absolutely not. You, you said that having the, the median wage requirement right across the accredited employer work visa was effectively a proxy for having a skills test, mm. but you are scrapping that requirement, and instead of having industry-led wages, wage mm. requirements, well, that was your, that's your policy yeah. at the very it, least. It's a, it's what a, effect is that going to have? Isn't that lowering the bar? Well... It's, it's part of our coalition agreement, and mm. it was something we've always said. I mean, the, the, putting the median wage in place has had exactly the opposite effect, as mm. you've seen, right? We've had an explosion of low-skilled migrants rather than the other way around. So, so, how, so will, how, will, how will losing that requirement mean the people we bring in have higher skills? Because there are other things you can put in place. So, for example, under the essential skills, what we used to do was have a really stringent labour market test to actually make sure that the people we were bringing in were, were genuinely required. So, we used to say, have you been to WINS to do a WINS check? Have you, uh, who, who, who have you uh, interviewed for this job and why were they not successful? Mm. Um, what other steps have you taken? Are you training Kiwis? So there was a whole lot of these gateway steps that you could essentially say, well, mm. actually, we don't think you've done enough. 
that has all gone and we are basically operating on a pinky promise at the moment with, mm. with employers. And so that's, that's why stripping all that away and putting just the median wage in, when the median wage didn't work, there was no backstop to saying, hey, actually, we don't think these jobs mm. are genuine. So that's why we're in the situation. And now we're having to take some very careful steps on how we manage that. What sort of time frame should we expect for those changes? There are going to be some some immediate yeah. and some longer term, and then the GPS, the very long term. Um, so there will be some things that we've got under active consideration at the moment that you will see us speak about in, in the in the you know, next month or so, uh, and then some further changes. But what we, like I said earlier, what we don't want to do is a knee jerk. Uh, we want to see what these what changes the the outcome of the changes that we make. Yeah. And then if we need to go further, we will. But we have to be cautious because, as Sharon said, and you've got her coming in next, you have to be very careful. The, the economy is shifting and migration follows the economy. Yeah. And we could find ourselves in a situation, if we do knee-jerk, that they all empty out again and we're back to where we started. So, so. Uh, will you be introducing those changes before the review into the accredited employer work visa is released? Uh, most likely after, because right. it's really important to take those uh, considerations. So, so this review was announced after numerous reports of migrant exploitation. Yes. What are you expecting that report is going to show? I haven't seen it yet. Mm. Um, the report basically says, is the AEWV fit for purpose? And did Immigration New Zealand uh, enact it in the, in the correct way? So uh, I haven't seen it, I but know, I do the, want to see whether or not the recommendations are useful. The terms of reference are very narrow. The review will not examine the appropriateness of the policy settings or consider the merits <laughs> of, of any individual accreditation or job seek decision. Well, well as if Minister, you're the government, why didn't, but, why but you're you the minister. Want... <laughs> you're the government now. So, so why not broaden those terms of reference? Look, it's about to be released. We can't have this dragging on. Um, it, literally, we are a couple of weeks away or a week or so away from it being released. I think so. Uh, it's too late for that. But I mean, the point here is, is that the government squarely are trying mm. to put the blame on Immigration New Zealand and not what the minister knew mm. or what the government policy settings were, and that's a shame. Um, but I'll no doubt have something to say about that, Jack. So no. Are you considering humanitarian visas for people in Gaza who are immediate relatives of New Zealanders? It, it is something that we will consider. We haven't gone there just yet. I've always said that it is something that we will definitely consider. Every single week in my weekly report, I ask for all of the numbers of Palestinians in Gaza or Palestinians who are uh, applying for visitor visas. I've mm. made sure that we have a dedicated team and a dedicated inbox in immigration so mm. that we're... Uh, expediting those uh, visas. Well, why haven't we introduced it? What more do you need to see from Gaza? Well, uh, there's a number of things going on. Firstly, other than Canada, nobody has shifted to do that. So we're trying Australia to. Australia has. No, they haven't. They have a no. See, you might think they have, but they have not. They have not introduced, um, as far as I'm aware, a, a specific Palestine visa. No. They have a a catch-all humanitarian visa that they implement sometimes. So it's not a bespoke visa. They haven't created anything. Right. Uh, and it's very limited. But, but that, that visa limited. Is, is, it does apply to relatives of Australians who are in, in Gaza. Yeah, it can do. But right. we also have a visitor visa, which we've said if you have a relative in, visa, mm. in Gaza, you can apply for a visitor visa. Mm. We will expedite it. We've got a special team set up. And we will look to consider... Uh, further visas if necessary. How, and how I've asked immigration, I mean, they can turn on a dime right. and introduce something like that. I mean, that you, you move to. in opposition, you were very fast to call for visas for, for people yes. in Ukraine. So what's the difference? Well, very different situation in Ukraine because it, in a lot of these situations... It's pretty desperate in Gaza. Yes, but also if you think about our, our policy settings in Ukraine, there is absolutely no way we could ever take refugees. We, we, the UNHCR do not mm. ever uh, say don't take refugees from Europe and they would never have mm. from Ukraine. So we had very little option there. 
in, the, in, in, in Gaza, I imagine that the UNHCR at some point will, will call on us for a response in terms of our uh, refugee visas. Uh, but I'm, so talking about, uh, I'm talking about immediate relatives of New Zealand yeah. citizens. Do, do you know how many immediate relatives of, of New Zealand citizens would be in Gaza? Well, I know that we've had about 40 applications so right. far. So the applications are very low. The problem we've got, Jack, is they can't get out. So at the moment, we've, our focus is on humanitarian support mm. and um, MFAT are working very close with people on the ground. Um, literally, they can't get out. If I put a visa in place tomorrow, you know, it's not going to have an impact right now. So, we, look, it's not something that we're ruling out. We absolutely are keeping an eye on things and we will move in step so, with our partners. I mean, we have got New Zealanders out of Gaza, right? So, so, so if we were able to get New Zealanders out of Gaza, having a specific Gaza visa for the relatives of New Zealand citizens in Gaza, that, that wouldn't be of assistance at the rougher Well, you border? need to talk to MFAT, but my understanding is that... Um, Shouldn't you know they're that? A, Well... Yes, but they know more detail than I do. But my understanding is that uh, foreign nationals have been able to exit, mm. but Palestinians have not. Regardless of mm. whether they have a visa, they've not been able to exit. One final question, and it's a question about values that I asked the previous government as well. Do disabled migrants have the same opportunity to move to New Zealand as non-disabled migrants? Uh, it depends on the setting. So at the moment we have a, 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 a basically a health check. Uh, and it takes a look at you know the level of healthcare that you will need over your mm. lifetime, uh, and it sets a bar. And it says if mm. it's above this, then residency is is not available to you. But if it's below this, then yes, you do. And so that can be shifted. Do over you think? Time. Do you think? What what does it say about our, our values as a country that someone's value is only measured in economic terms as a migrant? Well, I think what it says is that actually we've got an overburdened health system, um, an ageing population. Mm. And we're very stretched. We don't have enough GPs. We don't have enough nurses. We've, we've got a, a health... You, we all know the situation that we're in with our health system. Uh, and I know that it seems heartless, but actually what is the purpose of Immigration New Zealand? The purpose of the Act is to make sure that we're putting New Zealanders first. Uh, and so, yes, I accept that, you know, it, it might sound heartless, but there has to be a point where we say, actually, uh, you know, with a burden on the health system and the, and the mm. system as it is at the moment, mm. that is not sustainable if we say to everyone, no matter what your health it's condition... Not, it's not everyone, I suppose. I, I suppose the question is whether or not... Well, who are you uh, talking about? People, no, just uh, just if, if people can enrich our countries in other ways, our country in other ways. And w when you measure someone's value only in economic terms, strictly in economic terms, and there's a bar that's immovable, like you say at the moment, then I suppose that says something about our values. Well, you know, it's, it's a balancing act, Jack, mm. because we could, you know, we could shift and say, look, our values mm. say this, and let's let... Uh, you know, shift this bar right up, and then immediately we have a huge impact on the health system, mm. and then we have New Zealanders saying, well, I can't get into these services. Mm. And so it is a balancing act. And so, you know, it would be in a perfect world with a, you know, a health system that can cope with all of that. Absolutely. But unfortunately, we're not in that situation. Thank you for your time. You're Immigration welcome. Minister Erica Stanford. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can flick us an email, you can find us on X or on Facebook. Coming up, a special visitor for the new space minister as Judith Collins looks to ramp up New Zealand's space industry. Kia ora. welcome back to Q&A. Aotearoa New Zealand has become one of the stars of the international space industry. The local sector is thought to be worth almost $2 billion now. And for the first time, we have a minister for space. Judith Collins spoke to reporter Fina Owen about her new role... But not everyone is cheering on the new space race. We're going to 
2006, Cape Canaveral, and a space shuttle is about to carry a crew of six to the space station. And uh, Heidi Piper is preparing to go on board Atlantis as well. This was one of two shuttle missions for astronaut Heidi Piper. Two, one, and liftoff of Space Shuttle Atlantis. February 2024, and Heidi Piper, a brave veteran of five spacewalks, is about to meet Judith Collins, New Zealand's very first Minister for Space. Hello, how are you? How exciting, isn't it, to have an astronaut visit? In the space space, Judith Collins considers she's picking up from where the last national government left off. So we set up the space agency uh, when we were last in government in 2017. And we did that before Australia, didn't we? Yes, we did. We are before Australia, and there have been a few Australian comments that they think that we're a bit ahead of them. And yes, we are. We are. Um, so it's, um, look, the, the industry is just growing so fast, and it's so many opportunities for us. Rocket Lab is credited with launching our global reputation in space. We are just one of 11 countries with launch capabilities, but beyond that, over 12,000 people are employed in the space industry here, from manufacturing parts, Earth observation, testing vehicles, to R&D and the monitoring of space debris. advantages do we have as, as you know, space real estate? Well, we have pretty clear skies for a start. Um, so we've, you know, we are at the bottom of the world essentially. We have the big blue Pacific Ocean uh, surrounding on that, uh, particularly that eastern side. And so when we launch a rocket, if something goes wrong, nobody's going to think we're trying to declare war on them, for instance. Um, but also if it goes down, it goes down the sea. So there's a lot of advantages there. The New Zealand Space Agency is putting together a work programme for the portfolio. Meanwhile, the Minister's keen to attract more investment in the industry and build more aeronautical testing facilities, like the recently completed Tāwhaki runway. She also wants to streamline the approval process for aerospace vehicle testing and signing off rocket launch payloads. I've actually just met recently with um, Peter Beck from Rocket Lab who came to visit and um, that was one of the one of the issues that had been raised in the past. What was that? That, 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 that was, take, it was too taking long a little to too long. Right. But what I've seen is that they they were very happy with the way that uh, the effort that the space agency is putting in to making sure that we have a process that can either be approved or not approved. So with streamlined paperwork and two launch pads, Rocket Lab should be able to launch more frequently. What will that mean for residents on Mahia Peninsula? What can't we film, Peter? Uh, well, you can film... Uh... Several years ago, Q&A visited Rocket Lab and then went to Mahia, where a cray fisherman told us his livelihood was being threatened by the launch schedule. Other locals couldn't access their land. They put restriction, oh, it's, we're locked off. They've got timetables for us on our own venue. What's the answer to that? Well, I think everything has to be reasonable. I mean, if we'd like to um, not have a space industry, we could, I mean, Rocket Lab could launch everything from Virginia in the States, in which case I would be saying to those crayfish men, how about you look at the, the jobs and the opportunities for your children 
in becoming involved in the space sector. Much higher wages, um, much better lifestyle, but also it's, you know, these are jobs for Kiwis. With the newly created portfolio, the Green Party's Tiano Tuiono has vowed to keep the pressure on the government to be transparent about what we're putting up into space. At the moment you can talk about the Minister can prohibit or stop the launching of a payload into outer space if it is contrary to the national interest, but there is no qualification what the national interest is. Uh, so I think we need to go back and think about those original intentions, which is about the peaceful uses of space. I think we need to be realistic about this. Um, one of the reasons that Ukraine is still able to fight for its life uh, is because of satellite technology. And we should be very aware that um, there is obviously uh, an opportunity around defence. Right now, the New Zealand and Australian Defence Forces pay for satellite information on illegal fishing, for instance. The Australian Defence Force is planning to launch its own low-orbit assets or satellites. What about us? Is there a possibility of Defence having its own uh, system? Well, that is absolutely on the cards. We just have to, one, have the money, make, make, it, make it worthwhile, and also be aware that, you know, it's one of the ways we can keep a track on what's going on in our backyard. Low orbit is now crowded with space junk and satellites with mega constellations promised. Space activity in our own skies will increase. That impedes the essential work of our astronomy community and the booming dark sky tourism sector. They're hoping a minister for space will listen to them. We have to influence the global thinking to protect our night skies. And the way to start is to take a leadership position. That's a great opportunity New Zealand has got. Obviously there's going to be some uh, issues for them and that's something we're happy to talk to them about. The Minister's well into her portfolio work, having signed off Rocket Lab's next payload, a Japanese project to remove space junk. The launch window for that opens tomorrow. So what's the Minister's personal interest in space? Is she a sci-fi fan? Does she believe in aliens? There's been a few people I've met over the years who've made me wonder whether or not we have some, some here. So you're sort of into space, aren't you? Yeah, it's really exciting. I love technology, space, anything moving forward. I remember the first uh, moon landing, and obviously I was a very small child, but I wrote it down in my little notebook at the time, and I've kept it all these years. And so really, you were Minister for Space, it was written in the stars. It was. <laughs> That's reporter Fina Owen talking to Judith Collins after the break. As one of our biggest companies records a significant loss, we ask what Fletcher Building's woes mean for the broader economy. Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Despite government revenue tracking slightly ahead of forecasts in the second half of last year, Finance Minister Nicola Willis says the government's fiscal position for the May budget is unlikely to be improved. But with low unemployment, ANZ is now forecasting two increases to the official cash rate this year. ANZ Chief Economist Sharon Zolmer is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. I'm going to get to that big call in a couple of minutes. <laughs> I want to start off with the Fletcher Building news this week. Of course, Fletcher Building posting a significant loss. Is there a story there for our broader economy? 
Well, certainly the construction sector is the pointy end of the economy. It tends to ride the whole boom and, and the whole bust. And I think we certainly have seen that in this cycle. We've had the, the biggest, one of the biggest building booms ever in terms of housing mm. construction uh, at a time our population was shrinking. And now, of course, we're on the other side of that with interest rates having been much higher. But it's not necessarily all doom and gloom for that sector. In fact, in our Business Outlook survey, there's been a, a very sharp upswing in, in what builders are saying about the outlook ahead. Now, that is small builders, that's mm. not your, your big infrastructure companies, uh, but nonetheless it, it does suggest that there is perhaps uh, light at the end of the tunnel. A couple of key data points of the last couple of weeks. Let's start off with the migration numbers, 126,000 was the net gain in 2023. What impact is that likely to be having on inflation? So basically it's a two-sided coin. On the one hand it's more workers and if the supply of anything goes up the price of it tends to go down or at least not go up as quickly. And so that is helpful for the Reserve Bank in terms of taking some of that heat out of the labour market. Mm. We had the most overheated labour market on record across a whole range of measures. Mm. That has changed. Uh, on the other hand, those workers all need somewhere to live. Uh, obviously, not many of them would be in a position to buy a house or possibly legally couldn't anyway. But rents, uh, for example, are a particular concern for the Reserve Bank at the moment. So they estimate that with, with acknowledging a lot of uncertainty, that migration mm. is a small net positive for inflation. So in that regard, any upward surprises to migration, they will view as problematic. And that is uh, what they've seen since November. Not big surprises, but mm. upward. But, but surprises, right. Mm. OK, uh, unemployment data last week came as a bit of a shock related to those migration numbers, probably 4%, which was lower than many expected. What do you put that down to? So essentially we've seen uh, jobs filled holding up really well. So employment is still really strong. Obviously we've had a huge surge in the labour force growth mm. with so many migrants coming in. Uh, the Reserve Bank's expectation would have been uh, that that would have opened up more spare capacity in the mm. labour market by now. As it was, we've had some indicators suggesting that, but some indicators going the other way. So, so a real mixed bag, actually. Let's talk about your call then. You're picking the OCR will uh, go up another 50 basis points this year. Is there any other economist publicly <laughs> agreeing with you yet? <laughs> not yet, not yet. Uh, but basically, uh, we think that in November, the Reserve Bank sounded a little bit trigger happy. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, talk, they said they talked about hiking. They published a forecast for the official cash rate that showed 19 points of hiking. A hike is typically 25. So, mm. you know, we think they're pretty close to the line and they just need a nudge rather than a shove. And, and we've had a nudge in the data, basically. Uh, we've had unders and overs, and you can pick and choose if you mm. want to support your case. But on balance, when we weigh it up, we think that capacity is not opening up in the economy as fast as they would have expected. And some of the direct inflation indicators are looking really sticky. Mm. They'll be aware this could be a policy mistake, but they'll also be aware that they just can't be sure they've done enough to meet their mandated target. You know, this is the thing. Is, is a nudge returning to the single mandate? Well, that in the, at the margin simplifies the comms, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't actually think it's a meaningful <laughs> change in, in how they operate. Right. Because it was always clear that the inflation target was the primary goal. Mm. But, but certainly um, it, it does simplify the communications around doing what needs to be and done. And if they are going to hike, they don't want to hike just 25, they've got to go 50 to make sure it's worth it. <laughs> well, basically, if you think you're only 25 basis points away from where you need to go, then mm. a, a very viable alternative is to just hold for longer. Mm. But we suspect they passed that point already some months ago. Basically, mm. ever since May last year, when they called a, a stop to hikes, 
there's just been a relentless little chipping away at their confidence yeah. that that's enough. And you can't point to one piece of data and say, that's the smoking gun, that's why they need mm. to hike again. So we're trying to guess when they're crossing an invisible line. So it's quite reasonable that there are different views on that. What impact are the fiscal policies of the new government likely to be having on that decision? Well, basically, the Reserve Bank does not take a punt on what policy is going to be for pretty obvious reasons. So they will just be operating off what we heard in November. Um, so very little impact, I think. That's a, that falls into the cross that bridge mm. when you come to it. But obviously we've got a government that wants to cut spending but also cut taxes and how those two things will actually balance out in terms of net inflationary impact mm. on the economy is really uncertain. But I don't think the Reserve Bank will be assuming the government's going to solve this problem for them so they should mm. just chill out. They can't do that. Presuming migrant numbers don't fall off a cliff and the net migration increase in New Zealand was 126,000 for the 2023 calendar year, so Dunedin, we added Dunedin, what is the likelihood that we have increases to the OCR and increases to the housing market? Well, actually, some central banks have seen a bit more life in their housing markets than they would have mm. expected. And certainly migration has traditionally been a very strong tailwind mm. for our market. I mean, there have been policy changes like the foreign buyer ban, for example. So, But we do have some policy tailwinds, you know, the, the tax changes for example, around the deductibility of interest and the bright line mm. test. So the Reserve Bank will, have, will be wary of what the housing market could do. Uh, but so far, it, it's, it's really chugging along. In mm. January, house prices jumped a percent. That was unexpected. But house sales were dire. Second mm. weakest January since 1992. So you weigh that up and we think they'll just keep housing in the watch, worry and wait basket. And it's not a, a reason to hike at the moment of itself. Just how complex is it at the moment, trying to pick the direction of our economy? <laughs> well, it's never easy, but at the moment it's particularly complicated because in the good old days, you used to basically just forecast demand yeah. and assume the supply side of the economy would catch up with it. At the moment, we've got lots of stuff happening on the supply mm. side too. Obviously, migration is a biggie, uh, but also just the, the hangover from COVID and the productivity hit and all the, all the weird stuff that's going on. Shipping costs, they were a huge issue, then they went away, now they're coming back. Uh, yeah, so lots of stuff. Um, you've got moving parts and the Reserve mm. Bank's observing the net imprecisely with revisions. Mm. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, it's not easy. Who want to be a bank economist, eh, Sharon? <laughs> Thank you for your time. Good luck. Sharon Zolner, ANZ's Chief Economist. So you know, as well as watching our show on TVNZ+, Plus, you can actually find all of our interviews on YouTube. Just search NZQ&A and we will pop right up. Now, in a few minutes, Christopher Luxon's going to make his first State of the Nation speech as Prime Minister. We are live to Auckland next as he prepares to take the stage. Tēnā koutou. welcome back. Christopher Luxon is about to deliver his first State of the Nation speech as New Zealand's Prime Minister. One News Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman is standing by at the Waipuna Conference Centre in Tāmaki, Makoto, Auckland. Kia ora, Mikey, what are we expecting the major themes in the Prime Minister's speech to be? Good morning, everyone. Well, we're expecting essentially two things with the State of the Nation speech today. The first is that it is a scene setter, and the second is that it outlines exactly what the government wishes to achieve over the next term of government. Now, in terms of being a scene setter for Christopher Luxon, this is basically his opportunity to tell the public what the last government has left this current government, so what the last Labour lot has given over to 
to the new lot. Expect Christopher Luxon to go in hard on Labour. He will be driving uh, the challenges that this current government faces in terms of the economy. That is a major one. And then also hoping to switch the narrative. Of course, uh, the first few months of this year has been dominated by the coalition partners' policies and their issues. Think about uh, New Zealand First and the uh, smoke-free legislation that they're looking to repeal, and also Act's Treaty Principles Bill. Those two issues have sucked up a lot of the oxygen for this government. So this is the opportunity for Christopher Luxon to put on the agenda his government's priorities. Talk to us a little bit more about that second point there, because, because a lot of the government's running over the last few months has been made by the Coalition Partners Act and New Zealand First. Do you get the sense that Christopher Luxon is seeking to, to rest the steering wheel and remind everyone that he's the one in charge? I certainly think that he'll be hoping to give off that impression today that will be him trying to wrestle back that kind of narrative that I was talking about earlier. It has been dominated in the first few months, as I said, with New Zealand First and Axe policies. But I think we also need to remember that when you're dealing with two uh, big, uh, strong-willed coalition partners like New Zealand First and like Axe, that will always be the challenge, that perception of who exactly is holding the steering wheel. So that won't go away. I think. To Christopher Luxon's uh, benefit and to his success, actually, he's managed to keep a cool head despite all of these tumultuous debates that his coalition partners have been whipping up for this new government. He's managed to keep a cool head and he hasn't been lured into the pressure of some uh, to criticise his coalition partners. He understands that they are independent political parties. They won't always agree and see eye to eye on certain things. And if he does allow himself to get drawn into that, defending his coalition partners time and time again, that'll be a slippery slope. Uh, so he's managed to avoid that. These speeches are often viewed as, as a milestone for political leaders at the start of the political year. So with the government now almost three months into their tenure, how would you assess their progress so far against the goals they set themselves? I think you could say that they have achieved a lot, actually, despite uh, being three-quarters way through the 100-day uh, programme. In terms of the, the first things that you can get off, uh, tick off the list for a new government, it's scrapping uh, laws and legislations from the previous government, and the new government has certainly done that. They've got a uh, scrap pile heap, uh, if you like, in terms of you know getting rid of the RMA, getting rid of Three Waters, uh, scrapping the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax. Uh, oranga tamariki legislation and making tweaks to that, cultural reports. There are a heap of things that this current government have gotten rid of and uh, done away with, and that can be said uh, as a success for this government because, of course, they campaigned on those policies, so they can tick those up as a win. I think the big focus for this new government, though, will be on the next 100 days, and in fact the next year or two uh, into their governmentship, because they'll be wanting to implement their own policies, uh, and that will take time. Those things won't come uh, to pass uh, overnight and those things uh, will have to flesh out uh, over the next couple of years. So we'll see how they go. Kia ora, Mikey. Thank you. That is One News Deputy Political Editor Mikey Sherman live for us in Tāmaki, Makoto, Auckland. The Prime Minister is due to speak at about 10.30 this morning. We'll have coverage at onenews.co.nz and of course on One News at 6 tonight. For now though, kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey te wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Here.